Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Pushkin. Well, y'all, y'all actually read the book. I appreciate Man, we don't that. play. We don't <laughs> play here. <laughs> you are on some of my best friends' are. My goodness. Y'all, <laughs> yeah. y'all not faking it. I'm Khalil Gibran Muhammad. And I'm Ben Austin. We're two best friends. One black. One white. I'm a historian. And I'm a journalist. And this is Some of My Best Friends Are. Some of my best friends are dot dot dot. <laughs> In this show, we wrestle with the challenges and the absurdities of a deeply divided and unequal country. And this week, we're talking about the political history of interracial friendships. Come on, man. Our story. This is our story. <laughs> no, man. Representation. Representation. Political history. All right. <laughs> So a little while ago, we each got a book in the mail. Yeah, this book is by an author, a political scientist named Saladin Ambar. The book's titled Stars and Shadows, The Politics of Interracial Friendship from Jefferson to Obama. The whole gamut of black and white friendship in the history of the United States. Alpha to the <laughs> Omega. <laughs> and, and, you know, right. we, we get this book in the mail and the first thing we think about is, are we in it? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, because, I mean, how could we not be? I mean, who's had an interracial friendship for 36 years that, you know, you at least weren't sleeping with the other person? No, I, I was leafing <laughs> through it. I, I was looking through it. And so right. this book totally intrigued us. We start going to the table of contents and looking what's in it and these pairings of black and white friendships from the last 200 years. Yeah, it was it was surprising. I mean, first of all, I didn't even know about some of these relationships and then others which I knew about, like Benjamin Banneker, the famous black mathematician, had a correspondence with Thomas Jefferson. It was like holding Thomas Jefferson's feet to the fire. Like, dude, you know, you got to show up for black people. 
And then the most famous black intellectual, W.E.B. Du Bois, is celebrating his relationship with the most famous philosopher of the time, a guy named William James. And I was like, hmm, I was a little surprised. Yeah. And we were also dubious about this book. I mean, got to admit, mm-hmm. you know, that that in many of these cases, these people were not especially close friends. And, you know, so much of the premise of our show, like here we mm-hmm. have this show where we're interracial friends, is that those kind of connections alone are, are, are not the thing that are going to bring about structural change in the country. That's right. That's right. So we had Saladin on the show. He goes by Dean because now he's one of our friends as well. <laughs> and, and, you know, like we had to talk to him about this. And one of the things he points out that like even when there's not a lot of there, there in the friendship, what right. he's interested in is the politics of it, which is yeah. in a way sort of like friendship as symbolism. That's right. Yeah. And because that cuts against the grain in many ways of our show, we're poking fun of that, you know, like some of our best friends are. Um, he's making kind of a, a stronger argument that actually in that symbolism suggests the possibility of something, of structural change, of what he calls democratic possibilities. So let's talk to him. Yes. Yeah. So let's talk to Dean. Hey, welcome. Welcome. We are so excited. Professor Saladin Ambar is on. Some of my best friends are. That's right. Ben, yes, yes. This is a conversation we have been dying to have about interracial friendships. Yep. Right up our alley. And yes, I appreciate you guys building a podcast around this book. So thank you very much. That was very, very kind of you. The heart of our podcast is that we built this idea that friendships are important but they're not going to get us to the promised land. I wanted us to start this conversation with you, Dean, sort of talking about the inspiration for the book. Because I have to say, when I saw the title and I skimmed the cover of the book before I read it, I thought, ah, nah, I'm not convinced. Like, what's this guy talking about? Like interracial friendships and and like political projects and something about democracy. So unpack that a little bit. You know, what is this book really about? I was a little bit concerned too, Khalil, to be honest with you. You know, the last thing I wanted was to write a book where people thought, oh, we could just friend our way out of okay. white supremacy, right? <laughs> and, and there we go. Racial we hatred. Go. We could just, yeah. you know, just be friends. Why can't we get along? That was the last thing I was hoping for. If you really look at the two books I wrote before this, I wrote a book called Malcolm X at Oxford Union, Politics mm-hmm. of Global Race Relations. And that book um, really spoke to sort of my upbringing uh, my conversion to Islam during my teen years uh, hmm. and, and how that influenced me politically. And I was very much drawn, like a lot of people growing up in New York were, who were black anyway, to Malcolm's teachings. You yeah. dropped some nuggets there. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> so grew up in New York, came of age sometime, assuming in the late 80s as a teenager, when Malcolm was becoming a kind of avatar for yeah. black resistance to the war on drugs and all that. Hip-hop, that all the sound? whole deal, okay, yeah. Got, got you know, it, this got was it, got the, you know, the era of public enemy, uh, yep, yep. you know. Fight the power. <laughs> all of that, man. And did you have did you have white friends at the time or people who were Latino or Asian? Was, was your crew integrated? Well, yes and no. So it's, you know, I kind of lived a bit of a double life. Uh, you know, I was about to say the next book I wrote was about Mario Cuomo, former oh, wow, governor of New wow. York, and because um, he was because he was really a black dude. Well, pretending on the to down be low, maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe. But you know, Mario um, and his Italian heritage spoke to my own because my mom's mm. family, 
you know, comes from Sicily, her mm. side. Um, and so, you know, the point about Malcolm was I think I needed to uh, reaffirm, you know, who Malcolm meant to me, what my blackness mm. meant to me, but also mm-hmm. moving on to, you know, Mario, I had to focus on or I was drawn to focusing on that side of my heritage as well. And then I think this is a kind of this book is in many ways a kind of synthesis, you know, of me dealing with both ends of, uh, you know, that sort of psychological backdrop to who I am as a human being. And so I think I was grappling, frankly, with uh, some of my own questions about identity and who I am in the world. In Stars and Shadows, the book that we read, you look at 10 different friendships that are spanning 200 years of American history, starting with Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Banneker and going all the way to Obama and Biden. And on the way, you've got James Baldwin and Marlon Brando. You've got Angela Davis and Gloria Steinem. You've got a lot of different relationships in there. Um, and don't forget the ultimate black and Jewish relationship, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Rabbi Joshua Heschel. Boy, how could I forget? <laughs> Come on, man. Yeah, man. All right. <laughs> you know, and in, in a lot of ways, the book is also a history of America and a history of race and racism told through these these relationships. I thought we could pause for a second, though, and like actually try to talk a little bit more about what friendship really means in this context and to talk about like the terms we're using, like what is an interracial friendship and how are we talking about it here? Well, you know, I, I've tried to go back to, you know, the French revolutionary ideal of fraternité hmm. because I think unlike ordinary, you know, daily friendship um, among ordinary citizens, fraternité had political implications. Mm. You know, Benjamin Banneker had a lot of white friends. All his friends were white. He was a free black man in rural Maryland. He was a farmer and he was surrounded by whites and they were his friends and he got along. But, you know, he was not involved in a political project with them. Mm. And I think what happened with Jefferson and he is that he got involved in a political project. So, Dean, what you mean by political project is that Jefferson had written a racist book called Notes on the State of Virginia that essentially said black people were fundamentally inferior to white people. And here Banneker is, who's helped build the nation's capital and is now sending Jefferson an almanac. And he's like, dude, if we're inferior, how can I be this incredible scientist and mathematician? That's right. In other words, he wanted to use an attempted friendship, in his case, a connection he was trying to make you know, signing his letter using the language of my brethren and, you know, your humble, obedient servant. Jefferson responds back to him. He's using uh, a kind of breakthrough of social relations to make a political statement. And I think these 10 case studies are about taking with what one has on a private level. And I think maybe you guys can speak to this hmm. better than most. You had your friendship. It, it was what it was. But now when, when it's a podcast... It's a public. And it becomes part of a pu- public forum. Oh, man. You know, it, 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 it mm. involves something a little heavier. It becomes, it's not just, you know, two guys getting bagels or hanging out or listening to music or whatever y'all do. <laughs> yeah. Well, you definitely nailed us on the bagels and the music. That is a hangout. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> ben used to deliver bagels. <laughs> um, but but, but let's, let's, let's talk about this more because you, you know, in some ways I'm, we're, you know, it's interesting to talk about why these relationships are so difficult in America. And, you know, you cite this study uh, during the Obama years that you said three quarters of white people don't have a black friend and two thirds of black people don't have a white friend. And that is the state of America. And even even your book's title, Stars and Shadows, 
It comes from Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn, right? That's right. Huck and Jim are on the raft, and it's nighttime, and they look up, and all they have to navigate by are stars and shadows. And so you think about Huck and Jim on the raft, about their friendship and their bond, you could call it, if it's not a friendship, but that it exists really only on the raft. And the raft of this idea of being, you know, between two shores, of not being in America, of being this liminal space. And that's really the only realm in which they can have this connection. Mm, man, that was deep. You see, you used the word liminal, man. I, you know, I hadn't heard that since grad school, man. So that's... I'm, I'm here with two professors. I'm trying to, like, punch above my weight. So. Yeah, man, of course you're punching outside your weight class, but we're going to give you a chance to catch up with us. Look... We've been in this relationship for 35 years, and I'm beginning to wonder, are we even in an interracial relationship or friendship? What the hell's going on? So when we come back from the break, we're going to actually nail this thing down. What is an interracial friendship? As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking 
in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. In a few weeks, my friends and I are traveling to see a once-in-a-lifetime event. On April 8th, we're headed south to check out the solar eclipse. And as usual, while we travel, my entire crew will be staying in an Airbnb. Staying in an Airbnb always makes me feel a bit more at home when I travel. But during this trip, I started to think more about what would be going on with my home while I was away. Because when you're away from home, your place could be an Airbnb. So why not consider becoming a host yourself? Because if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you pretty much have an Airbnb. Hosting is a great way to earn some extra money. Plus, hosting is a lot easier than you might think. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back to Some of My Best Friends Are. We're talking with Saladin Ambar, who goes by Dean. So, Dean, what is an interracial friendship? Let's define this. I think, you know, these interracial friendships... Uh, carry great possibilities uh, in part because they involve, you know, a kind of um, greater spiritual dimension to life because uh, mm, they involve okay. matters of the heart, you know? And I think that... Because of, because of what they overcome? I mean, why would that be different than another relationship? Well, I think back to your point about we're in America, you know, um, and, and pretty much any multiracial society... Um, that has, and all of them have been tainted, if not driven by white supremacy these several hundred years now, um, you know, place uh, a premium on, um, you know, following suit with what is alike rather than what is different. There's a kind of stress, an inherent stress, I would say, involved uh, in these kinds of relationships and connections that don't take place in the same way that they do in ordinary friendships, which can be stressful enough. you know, if people are being truly honest with themselves. Well, this is something that, that I, I want to just take a moment to discuss a bit further. And that is, in your 10 case studies, and this is not a criticism so much as an observation, man, most of these cats weren't actually friends. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, What would you call it if it's not a friendship? Well, I, <laughs> well, I would call it a relationship, okay. right? Because I can think of a thousand different scenarios, particularly in my professional work, where I am connected to someone and that through that connection, we make something happen. And it might even be something of some political import to happen. But I wouldn't necessarily call those folks friends. And I'm curious for you, how important was it that people see these as friendships rather than as connections, relationships, somewhat even transactional? It's a great point. I think the key to is is the politics of interracial friendship. Hmm. So you take Du Bois and William James at Harvard. You know, uh, these are not people who are hanging out. They're not getting the bagels and go and you know going to the jazz <laughs> spot, right? And I think this is to your point, uh, Khalil, about you know the authenticity and depth of the friendships if they were friends at all. Is in Ordinary terms, we would not describe Du Bois and James as friends, but Du Bois uses that language. He goes out of his way to call James my friend. He, you know, extols his relationship and connection with him for many years yeah. because, in part, Du Bois has a political project in mind. First of all, he wants to connect himself and black intellect 
to the greatness that James represented. So that's mm. an important you know, project of his own right there. He wants to situate himself as a social equal with James, an intellectual equal with James, but also um, by extension and proxy, all other black folk uh, in the country. I think that's his political project. And he goes out of his way to talk about James in those terms. James does not call Du Bois his friend ever. He has this letter that he just says, some, some mulatto grad student I have. He, he right. writes a letter to his brother. <laughs> That's right. And so, well, y'all, y'all actually read the book. I appreciate that. Man, we don't that. play. We don't <laughs> play here. <laughs> you are on some of my best friend's arm. My goodness. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Y'all not faking it. You appreciate it. So, but I think that's the point, though. Okay, can we just talk for a minute about the friendship between the writer James Baldwin and the actor Marlon Brando? I could have been somebody. I could have been a contender. Yes, Marlon Brando and James Baldwin probably was the most intimate, you know, uh, meaningful yeah. relationship on a personal level. They were, you know, most likely lovers. and They were friends with benefits. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that was a very powerful and real connection and friendship. You know, you're right. Most of these would not be described conventionally as friendships. These are not always people socially hanging out. But um, all of them, I think the key is that all of them have... Uh, some of the parties, or if not both of them, make the effort to use their friendship, uh, however lightly regarded it was or held by mm. either party, to make some kind of democratic statement. Yeah. I got a question for you, Khalil, about that. You know, in a way, that's a definition of not a friendship, like if there's a use value to it. And it makes me think about like after George Floyd and, you know, all the sort of concern that, that white people had in America, they were thinking about their white privilege. It was really a reckoning. And, right. and you know, this sort of permeated much of the culture. I don't know if that was like, that's not friendship. Or maybe is that the, the, the moving toward? I think that what's interesting about how uh, Dean just explained this is there's something in the performance of the reaching out in the midst of George Floyd that creates the possibility for something more substantial. Hey, you're someone I know. Can we talk about this as friends might? And so the relationships may be superficial, but it's the invitation for a deeper reflection that I think that, Dean, you would say creates, quote unquote, democratic possibilities. I think so. Look, stagecraft is important in politics. It's very important in a multiracial democracy. Mm. Um, and, and stagecraft, you mean the appearance of something as a public good or a positive or a relationship even. When Lincoln calls out to Douglas in the White House, when the guards in that their third meeting after the second inaugural address, when they're escorting uh, Douglas out of the White House, Lincoln calls out to him, there's my friend Douglas. <laughs> now, they were not homies. They had two meetings prior right. to that. Two meetings. Two yeah. meetings and a letter. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. it. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, when Lincoln calls out, there's my friend Douglas, that's for the white guards, yeah, that's every- for the white attendees at the inaugural uh, yeah. ceremony and, and ball, that's for yeah. white America. Look, y'all, right. when this thing is over, when this war ends, we just can't, you know, have a de facto uh, in name only kind of citizenship for these folks. We have to be their friends. Right. And yeah. that's stagecraft. But we need it. You know, yeah, you, yeah. You, you need it. That story reminds me of this powerful New York leader introducing me to a bunch of very wealthy white people. Um, and in a way that was like Khalil's demand. Like I came to despise the term because this like 
this euphemism of like, he's a smart, articulate Black person as you the man or he's the man also felt like it not only cheapened me as kind of a set piece in, yeah. in a stage production, um, but also was not for my benefit. It didn't actually credential me in any way. It just it just said he's okay. Like, he's okay in this space. Yeah, if we're talking about a low-end project or not even a, a personal project or something that is connected to self-affirmation or being seen as cool, this is hard work. This is, you know... Um, the tendency to, to fall over into the cheap and, and the profane and the silly um, with respect Sound, to- Sounds like American popular culture. Yeah, it, no, it, it's, it's right there. It is right there. You know, someone asked me, well- It's like Kanye and Trump, right? Well, I, exactly. I mean, someone said, well, you should do Beyonce and Gwyneth Paltrow. I was like, mm, I don't know if that's the book I'm talking about here, but you know. <laughs> so when we come back, we're going to talk about two more of these high profile interracial friendships. Mm-hmm. Two of them in which the symbolism, you know, It matters in a different kind of way. Yeah, yeah, like breaking the color barrier. Yeah. (laughs) As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer, So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash 
unconventional awards. See you there. In a few weeks, my friends and I are traveling to see a once-in-a-lifetime event. On April 8th, we're headed south to check out the solar eclipse. And as usual, while we travel, my entire crew will be staying in an Airbnb. Staying in an Airbnb always makes me feel a bit more at home when I travel. But during this trip, I started to think more about what would be going on with my home while I was away. Because when you're away from home, your place could be an Airbnb. So why not consider becoming a host yourself? Because if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you pretty much have an Airbnb. Hosting is a great way to earn some extra money. Plus, hosting is a lot easier than you might think. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back to Some of My Best Friends Are. We are talking about interracial friendships, and we are going to the 1950s for a very special friendship. Well, who, who are your favorite people to hear from modern music? Well, my very favorite person, I love her as a person as well as a singer. I think she's the greatest, and that's Ella Fitzgerald. Wow, that's Marilyn Monroe giving big ups to Ella Fitzgerald. <laughs> that's the friendship we want to talk about next. Can you tell us about that story of like why, why it appealed to you? Well, what went down is that Marilyn Monroe and Ella Fitzgerald had a kind of casual friendship and connection. You know, it was not a, hmm. you know, a kind of acquaintanceship, you know, bordering on a friendship. And Marilyn Monroe is like every other would-be singer patterning herself off of Ella Fitzgerald. Why wouldn't you? you, you she's listening to tons of yeah. her music, trying records, and trying to learn, you know, yeah. her secrets. So she has a profound respect for for Ella. And ultimately, she hears that Ella will not be is not being booked by Charlie Morrison, the owner of this Macambo Club in Hollywood, and. The reason why she's not being booked is not because she's black. It's because she's not sexy enough for Charlie and for the white mm. patrons who attend the Macambo Club. They've had, you know, the Eartha Kitts and other black women perform who fit the bill. So the, the, uh, the point is that, you know, so much of uh, what transpires in terms of how it's interpreted is that somehow Marilyn uses her stature to get Ella into the club because she was opposed to racism. Well, Marilyn knew why she wasn't being admitted into the club. It wasn't, again, a, a color barrier. It was a kind of, you know, stereotype of women and the kinds of women who should be allowed to perform based on their looks. So, you know, Marilyn does stick her neck out. She does, you know, say, hey, I, you know, if you let uh, Ella into the club. I'm going to use my cachet to ha and tell all my Hollywood friends to start coming to the Macambo. And right away, this gets a ton of publicity. Like it's all in the news. Like Marilyn Monroe, and and she's the actor, and Fitzgerald is the acted upon. Like Marilyn Monroe is kind of this white savior who gets talked about in this way of, of getting her this gig and, and crossing the, the color line. Yes, and you know, it, it becomes a white savior story. I mean, I think I include a bunch of headlines and you know, Ella saved by Marilyn, <laughs> literally. These are some of the kinds of uh, titles for, for stories that, that go on. But it, it doesn't make Marilyn Monroe any less courageous in what she did. She did stick her neck out. And other, other people, other white performers would not have done that and did not do what she did. So I think you know, we, we can't devalue her um, 
her politics, which were pretty extraordinary for the time and often undervalued because of her beauty and her presentation and her aesthetic. Um, by the same token, I think that story is interesting to me because of what it says about us, you know, today. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah That's same. one of the things that you, you write about in the story, and that is that there are children's books being written today, published in 2020, you say, that highlight this relationship. And of course, there's been an explosion of books since George Floyd. This isn't one of, well, a couple of them that I looked at weren't necessarily post-Floyd, but they were part of a moment of people searching for some example, some representation, something symbolic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it really speaks to why these stories are so appealing, even if there's not a lot there. Like, this is really about the idea of it more than the substance. And in a way, the substance is not as important as what, like, what we're trying to pull yeah, from it. Yeah, it says that we want, you know, to be validated for knowing the story as much as for the actual story, right? We don't care if, this, if we get the story right. We want to, you know, frame the story in a certain way That's so right. that we can be validated. And it's okay to know that, you know, Marilyn didn't save Ella. She Her career was pretty off the hook at that point. She was doing great, mm -hmm. you know. She, That's right. Yeah, Ella Ella's was doing was, just great. Yeah, they both yeah. were, but, you know, she didn't get saved. I mean, you know, she was playing plenty of other venues and she was doing all right. I was thinking about why Ella Fitzgerald and, and Marilyn Monroe's story is so alluring for us today. Mm -hmm. And maybe especially for white people, you know, mm -hmm. at a time when we're, we're, we're thinking a lot about being fair and anti-racist. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that struck me is that it didn't really, like what Marilyn Monroe did, if we want to emulate that, it doesn't demand very much of us. Ben, I hadn't thought about it in quite as stark a term as you just described, but it also means that it's so much easier to actually do the kind of work that people like Marilyn did in this instance of saying, hey, look out for the singer, she's amazing, and I'm not coming back until you do. The low-hanging fruit almost makes the condemnation of the slow pace of of anti-racist change even more revealing like it, it in so many of these instances it didn't even demand much for someone to actually do something meaningful to create the space of possibility all right so let's talk about one more interracial friendship perhaps the most consequential of all time President Barack Obama and Vice President hmm. Joe Biden. Man, the most important of all time. Wow. <laughs> so we want to know, give us your take on these guys. Was this a hard chapter to write? I mean, how were you thinking about putting them into this story? How, how did how did you want the, the reader to come away taking something substantive about uh, Barack Obama as the first black president and Joe Biden as his vice president? You know, that moment when Barack Obama puts that presidential medal of, of freedom around, you know, Joe Biden's neck and Biden, you know, is holding, can't hold back the tears. That's a powerful moment, uh, in part because it says, you know, what's possible. And also, I think what's fearful for many white Americans, you know, I don't know, who fear the the loss of the, dem you know, rooted in demographic change. Uh, the idea that we're going to have a sequence or series of black or multiracial presidents, you know, leaders, et cetera, conferring these honors is somewhat problematic to them. So I think that that was that was uh, one yeah, of the, so the critical elements uh, to draw the contrast to what had come before. All right. And so digging into the actual substance 
of uh, Joe Biden's and Barack Obama's friendship, you know, it starts out kind of rocky. I mean, you, you cite this moment in the Senate when Barack Obama is listening to Joe Biden, like go on and on. And he's he's talking about how bored he is. And when Biden drops out of the, the president election in 2008, he has one of these lines, which is like exactly what you fear, like your white friend. You're just waiting for them to say something offensive. The first sort of mainstream African-American who is articulate and bright and, and, and clean and nice looking guy. Man, Joe, I mean, you said the first sort of mainstream African-American who is articulate and bright and damn clean. Come on, man. (laughs) I actually love it. I'm going to tell you why. Well, this is, you know, he's bright and clean uh, and and new. uh, And articulate. and articulate, <laughs> all, right. the clean, words, all the code words. It's, it's the clean that is it's like clean. You know, articulate. I know. Tell you, I'm like, I know. He's clean. Really? Really? <laughs> I know. I know. He's but not see, ashy. Not ashy. <laughs> Using the butters, you know, the shea butter, the cocoa butter. He's got all the butters. He, you know, he's looking clean. Biden's language there, I'm not surprised by. I'm not necessarily even hurt by. I understand where it comes from. And I look at Biden's life and the arc of his political life and personality and who he is in the world and who he's been. And I'm also not uh, struck in a way by because I think Biden just comes from who he is as a what is he close to 80 year old white man now um, in in life. And I'm, you know, I'm not excusing it. I'm saying I understand it. And I'm not informed by it in the same way I would be when I hear... um, other yeah. political leaders speak, you know, who are younger, who, you know, uh, whose heart is not in the right place. You're also, Dean, pointing to like uh, the dynamic in a lot of these friendships. And I'm speaking from the white side here. Uh-oh. But, you know, you're, we're friends up to an extent. And you're, you're imagining, you're like, oh, he's going to say something fucked up or, you know, you know, that's just who he is. But apart from that, he's cool. And so what you just said about Biden of like, I know where he comes from. I know all that stuff. It is exactly the kind of limits on on full friendship that we often fear in these in these dynamics. Yes. I mean, damn, it can't just be Mr. Rogers and John Brown as the only white people in American political history. It'd be a narrow list of folk you could really get with if if you set the bar where it really should be, frankly, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, yeah. We, I take into account the difficulty factor of being a white person living in a white supremacist society who's told you all these wonderful things mm-hmm. about you, et cetera. I have a degree of difficulty measure that I'm applying to who you are as a human being uh, in the same way that I think black folk deserve credit for surviving and thriving. You're, you're grading us on a curve, what you're saying. A little bit, a little bit, a yeah. little <laughs> yeah. bit. Relatives and all. All kind of folk included, yes, a little bit, well, sure. Well, well, that's the thing that I think is interesting about your discussion of Barack and Joe, uh, because you use the term in this chapter about performance art, and you talk about how much it mattered. I mean, there's this famous scene of President Obama and Vice President Biden walking uh, or, or jogging at the White House with both of their jackets off, and you know they're both looking vigorous and strong. And yet submerged underneath this genuine working relationship that, you know, by all accounts over eight years was productive, is this kind of tortured underbelly of like Joe Biden's own history from 
anti-busing to the crime bill to his role in Anita Hill. And I'm not here to relitigate so much as to say there's that tension between what you so aptly described as the shared history of loss between the two of them and this genuine relationship, and yet at what cost? Because it seems like all that other stuff wasn't actually part of their legislative agenda, right? No, and look, Barack Obama himself, with all of his blackness, uh, is still, you know, again, to a certain percentage of black political followers, thinkers, you know, uh, problematic in his own way from the standpoint of what he was able to or not able to accomplish in his presidency vis-a-vis, you know, black folks. Teaching our sons to treat women with respect and to realize responsibility does not end at conception. That what makes them a man is not the ability to have a child, but to raise one. You know, every day in this, in the United States, there are you know, there's a certain percentage of black folk who go to the office every day. Maybe they're supervised. They supervise, you know, white workers who are, who um, have to take orders from them. And they, you know, and that's its own kind of hell at times for them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And here here was Joe Biden who didn't say boo, you know, uh, <laughs> to to do anything really to hurt Obama. He never stabbed Obama in the back. He was loyal as the day is long, loyal as a dog, you know, and and black folk looked at that. Particularly the yeah. older you were and are as a African American in this country, that relationship resonated with you big time because you remember what it was like to go into a workplace and be the only one and then have and maybe be the, the first of your generation to have leadership roles yeah. where, where whites were, you know, um, your subordinates. And to see Biden, you know, uh, act gracefully towards Obama and never throw him under the bus. So I think those things matter to black folk. Hey, before we go, so Khalil and I are an interracial friendship. Do you have any questions for us? You know, as far as a question uh, for, for you guys, I think, um, well, one is maybe about your own relationship and having begun this podcast, has it changed the way you've thought about it? Or uh, is it, do you even want to be involved in like a kind of, or see yourself involved in a political project? Or is that kind of cheapen what you have or is this podcast sort of intentionally, um, you know, part of an idea of, you know, fo- moving the country forward? Yeah, I mean, we started out this conversation by saying, you know, the, the our show is almost premised on this idea that here we are, a black guy and a white guy. That's not going to get us to the promised land. And it did you, get us a podcast, though. And, and, and as you write, <laughs> as you write, like, those are steps that are important. It is not the thing. But, you know, we believe in the ideal of a multiracial democracy. How could you not? Like, how could you not feel like that's something where we have to try to strive for in some way? And, you know, so, so these kinds of conversations, these kinds of connections are, are, are not the fruition, but it's certainly like, uh, you know, a small way to, to start moving forward, to, have, to at least have dialogue. Yeah. Absolutely, Dean. You know, we wanted this podcast to be a post-Trump conversation about how did we get there and this notion of individualism and proximity to one another and that we we came of age as MTV babies and we grew up in an integrated community, largely middle class, um, I will add. Uh, but with all those markings of the possibility of a changed country, 
the country in some ways by so many measures is as worse as it was before the civil rights era. Um, and in other instances, when we talk about mass incarceration, it's worse than it was in the civil rights era. So clearly, we wanted to be able to talk about our coming of age story and to talk about this relationship as a window onto all the things we were deliberately not taught in school that we were not encouraged to think about and to ultimately reflect on that in a in a productive way at this moment to say we got a lot of work to do to understand the actual history and the yeah. present of the this crazy country we live in and in that sense i think your book is you know is an invitation to that history you actually that's what I love about the book, that it's more than just this meditation on the politics of friendship. It's actually a way of saying, at these particular crossroads, these relationships were fraught, and yet they were symbolically meaningful, and there were opportunities to take that symbolism and make it substantive going forward. Well, we are so grateful to have had you on this show. We certainly count you as one of our best friends. Thank you so much, Dean, for being Dean, uh, in conversation with us. Appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. Really, truly, it's been, been, been a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Dean. Well, that was a great conversation. It was. I mean, I, I definitely learned a lot. I was surprised at how convincing Saladin was in a lot of ways. So, yeah. So I have a question for you. Who are you in the book? Who do you identify with? <laughs> definitely Frederick Douglass. Uh -oh. I mean, come on. The hair? You know, handsome, <laughs> articulate, clean. Uh -oh. you know. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> No, but cert cert certainly like the commitment Douglas had to speak in truth to power. Yeah. So that's that's who I most identify with. And all right, you asked me, so I'm asking you. How about you? Marilyn Monroe. Uh, <laughs> oh, really? Using my sexuality for good. <laughs> oh, boy, we're in trouble. No wonder that didn't, <laughs> didn't end systemic racism in America. <laughs> all right, man. All right. I love you. <laughs> all right. Love you too, man. Some of My Best Friends Are is a production of Pushkin Industries. The show is written and hosted by me, Khalil Gibran Muhammad, and my best friend, Ben Austin. It's produced by John Asante and Lucy Sullivan. Our editor is Jasmine Morris. Our engineer is Amanda K. Wong. And our executive producer is Mia LaBelle. At Pushkin, thanks to Letal Molad, Julia Barton, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, John Schnars, Greta Cohn, and Jacob Weisberg. Our theme song, Little Lily, is by fellow Chicagoan, the brilliant Avery R. Young, from his album, Tubman. You definitely want to check out his music at his website, averyryoung.com. You can find Pushkin on all social platforms at Pushkin Pods, and you can sign up for our newsletter at pushkin.fm. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators 
whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at T-Mobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why GameBridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. GameBridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at GameBridge. Visit GameBridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.